0: Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier.
4: On this episode of the podcast, we're going to be revisiting a topic that we introduced a few weeks back Um, Listeners of the show will remember that we had uh, Dale Humberg on to talk about the North American Waterfowl Management Plan and joint ventures, and uh, importantly, part of that in the latest update to the uh, NAWMP was the recognition of, of the need to explicitly account for um, people in the way we manage habitats and some of the decisions that we make and the role that social science is helping us, uh, the role that social science is playing in help us, helping us understand some of those important topics and so today we have uh, a, a first time ever we have three in studio special guests to help us with this we're welcoming back former chief scientist dale humberg we also have joining us from the Uni- university of nebraska dr chris chesinski associate professor of human dimensions of wildlife and uh, his graduate student katherine graham a phd student so dale welcome to the show how are you doing mike doing well chris how you doing? Good. And Catherine. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Uh, this morning and early part of this afternoon, we had some discussions here in the building, had a meeting with Chris and Catherine about some of the work that they're conducting. And we thought this would be a great opportunity to welcome to them to the podcast and explore this topic in a bit more detail. Okay. So Chris, I think we'll start with you. Uh, and what we want, uh, probably the best place to start is for you to talk a bit about what you do. What you do, and I introduced you as a professor of human dimensions, and so for our audience, probably a logical place to begin is to just explain what we mean when we say human dimensions of wildlife.
5: So when we talk about managing wildlife, we talk about three different components. We talk about the biota, the animals that are out there in the landscape. We talk about the habitat, so the area that that organism lands or lives, and then the human users that that are tied to that. And Human Dimensions focuses in on those human users and, in per- particular, how they interact with wildlife. So we look at feedbacks between wildlife populations and people and then how people interact with the habitat, um, but also a lot of other things that, we, that are tied specifically to people. So their belief systems, their values, their attitudes, um, how they are affected by wildlife management decisions, how wildlife management decisions affect them, All of those kind of things. So human dimensions, it's a a wide field, incorporates a lot of different social sciences, but really focuses on the study of how people interact with natural resources, specifically fisheries
4: and wildlife in this case. I graduated with my bachelor's in 1998, and I think it was right about that time that this field of human dimensions was really starting to grow. Whenever I first kind of signed up for, for school at Mississippi State, working with people was one of the last things on my mind whenever I made that decision to enroll. But it became very apparent as I got, as I went through that program that, you know, we manage wildlife resources primarily for people, for their appreciation, for their use. And so Dale, I want to talk to you right now because you are among the, among these four, you're the most seasoned. Of, uh, of us, uh, you've, uh, you, I won't, I want to ask you to disclose when you graduated with your, your degrees, but, uh, but, but thinking back to those days when you were in school was, did you, did you join or sign up for wildlife ecology, that program basically with the same thinking that I did and that, hey, you're interested in animals, you want to hunt, you want to fish. And then, but then as you got in it, you started to see how important it is to, uh, to, to recognize the, why we're doing it, in the connection to people? Certainly, Mike. Uh,
2: I think most of us in wildlife initially, at least in that era, uh, got started because we liked the outdoors, we liked to hunt and fish, that traditional trajectory of our profession. I think the eye-opener came for me when I started working for an agency. I worked initially in Iowa and then with the Missouri Department of Conservation, and it didn't take... uh, very long at all to discover that what we were doing, um, although we like to have animals as the primary uh, target of our work and so on, was really for the people of the state. Uh, And uh, if we didn't do a good job managing the habitat, didn't do a good job of managing the the critters themselves, um, folks weren't going to be very happy. The phone was going to ring, and uh, we were going to have some administrators not very happy. And so the longer I was involved, the more obvious it became that we had three key tiers, as Chris mentioned earlier, habitat, the critters themselves, and the people that benefit both from the birds and the habitat.
4: Yeah, and I would, I would say that we had, up until recently, um, we had focused most of our science and experimentation on the, the animals and their habitats, yet we were still making decisions about how to manage those populations and manage those habitats Uh, based on assumptions of the other piece, the people and how they interact with and how they use it and what's important to it. So Catherine and I come along at a time when that field, the social sciences is really starting to explode within the wildlife, within the wildlife arena. And that's where this era of human dimensions comes into play. So Catherine, uh, when you enrolled, well, I guess I should, I should ask for my own personal clarification, when you enrolled for your bachelor's, was it a wildlife program or was it more of a social science background?
1: It was actually social science. Okay. So I got my bachelor's in political science, okay. um, with, did some sociology work, but was always interested in wildlife, but didn't really see you know, where that career, where I'd end up. But yeah, I got involved in political science and then realized I don't want to be working with politics the rest of my life. (laughs) So kind of got back to what I'm really interested in and realized that there's a whole field kind of getting started with social science, but also working, doing good things for wildlife and, um, working with people that are also interested in wildlife. So that's kind of how that came about.
4: And so you are enrolled in, in what department at the university of Nebraska?
1: So I'm school of natural resources. Now I am, um, so in human dimensions, but in the whole wildlife school of natural resources, yeah. um, so kind of a jump from political science. But yeah.
4: it's it's very neat just sort of looking back through the years of how you know, traditional wildlife programs at universities, the 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 academicians, the professors in those positions were pretty much all uh, habitat or population species specialists. But now we have we have all three. Science is represented, which is actually really cool. And I think it rep- it's, it's why we're starting to make some great strides in understanding uh, those connections. And of course, the next step is in figuring out how we can apply that science, what we learn from that science about what motivates people and how they interact with the the species and, and the habitats. And so that's part of what we're here to discuss today and some of the work that it, you, Catherine, and Chris are, are conducting in, in partnership with Ducks Unlimited and others. So uh, Chris, I guess picking back up where we were, um, we you've sort of defined human dimensions and that's your area of specialty. So maybe if you could uh, talk, uh, give a few examples of the type of work that you actually do in your lab and some of your students. Yeah, so we do quite a bit of,
5: um, a, quite a range of human dimensions research. A lot of it does focus more on the hunting and fishing arena as Catherine's study there is, is modeling um, behavior of waterfall hunters or conservationist behavior, how often they are participating, um, what influences their participation. Um, we've also sent out some very large surveys out to the Central and Mississippi Flyway surveys asking and looking at what is preventing people from participating in waterfall hunting in particular, but a lot of different hunting activities. Um, we've also investigated the influence of private land hunting are private lands on the hunting of elk in Nebraska. Um, really, because Nebraska is 97% privately owned elk are pu- uh, public good. Where are people going to hunt these elk? Are they paying trespass fees? All of those kind of things. Um, some kind of non-traditional stuff that we have working on right now. We actually have a graduate student in my lab that's looking at um, motivations and barriers to um, gatherers so mushroom hunters and berry pickers, um, all of those kind of things, understanding why people do it in the Midwest. It's a really popular thing out in the, the the coasts, but not so much as known about people here in the Midwest. So that's another kind of non-traditional route that we've been looking at, some of the, the uses of um, natural resources.
4: We'll probably get into this in a in a bit more detail as we go uh, as we go forward in this conversation, but Dale, I want to come back to you and revisit our our conversation from a couple of weeks ago, uh, and, and so Chris has mentioned some of their work to better understand motivations for participation uh, and engagement and behaviors. Uh, when we had you on in the previous episode, we were talking about the NaWAMP and the 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 inclusion in the in the new update to be explicit about acknowledging the needs of people and so just revisit for us why that's important from a waterfowl hunter standpoint we could extend this to anglers and and hunters of other types but of course our interest here is waterfowl so just revisit that and remind us of why is it important to uh to uh to understand what motivates hunters And to keep hunters engaged uh, and active. And what are we seeing right now with hunter numbers?
2: The role that hunters play as conservationists um, is something that was assumed historically. Uh, We always figured that if we managed the habitat, provided a place for the birds, and provided a a place for the hunters, ultimately, uh, we'd be successful. But we didn't pay a lot of attention to what were the motivations and barriers and incentives and how do individuals or, or groups negotiate those, those obstacles and so on. And so with that in mind, uh, the North American plan, as we developed the, the more recent iterations, acknowledged that uh, we could no longer just assume what was driving people and their involvement and so on. With declining numbers of hunters, obviously, uh, the support base that they provided historically and hopefully occurs in the future uh, was going to erode. And if we didn't understand the people that were supporting what's important to all of us, um, we weren't going to be successful. Recognize that the rate at which society is changing is more rapid than our ability to keep up in some instances. And so if we had not explicitly acknowledged that that was going to be important going forward. I think we'd have been left in the in the wildlife management dark ages pretty quickly. And so uh, I think that's the primary motivation. The degree to which that's changed is something that perhaps we're even a bit behind the curve yet on. Um, the as I said, the uh, the rate of change is occurring so quickly that uh, we as a profession um, owe it to ourselves to keep up. And that's where folks like Chris and Catherine and uh, others come into into play is that historically, when we thought about human dimensions, we simply said, well, let's do a survey. Well, we are so far beyond just doing a survey these days with regard to social sciences um, and are treating it more as um, an explicit and rigorous form of science than we did historically. So those those changes I think are most significant going forward.
4: Chris, I'll come to you now and in our, in our discussion this morning, we've, this always comes up. It's one of the key reasons why we're even engaging here. And Dale has referenced it here, but the, the degree to which waterfowl hunters have declined across, uh, across North America. Dale uh, was referencing just a little while ago before we, before we got on the, on the show here. Uh, back in the 60s, I think maybe it was 2.5 million waterfowl hunters, but now we've seen some long-term significant cl- declines. Do you have some some numbers of what, what we've seen in terms of declines based on some of your The your last work? numbers I have were somewhere under just under a million waterfowl hunters. So we've gone from 2.5 million roughly in the 60s to less than a million now. And, of course, I'm sure there are a lot of people thinking out there listening and thinking, holy cow, I, I mean, it's it's tough to find places to hunt right now. Uh, without without a lot of competition, I can't imagine what it would have been like with 2.5 million. And that's another conversation we could talk about in, uh, in depth, you know, why, uh, how all of that has changed, but we'll save that for another time. But
5: well, I was going to say, with, with that loss, though, there, there's a lot of concerns, right? Because of what waterfowl hunters contribute to um, management of wildlife and management of waterfowl in particular, right? Every Every hunter that goes out there is purchasing firearms and shotgun shells that have the the Pittman Robertson excise tax that comes up to, goes to the federal government that is then given back to the states to provide waterfall management. Um, each, uh, not each state, but a lot of states have a state waterfall stamp. There is also the federal waterfall stamp that goes directly to conservation funding. So with these decreases in numbers of hunters, we're losing this money that is currently being used to management, uh, or manage wildlife and wetlands conservation. And if we don't find another, to bring up hunters, ways to bring up hunters, or keep hunters where they are at now, um, we're gonna be hurting for money to help manage these things. And in addition, we potentially could lose the culture tied to waterfall hunting. It's, it's an important culture, one that's celebrated here at Ducks Unlimited. Um, the, the political pull that has on those things to help making sure that we have conservation of some of our natural resources. Um, it's an important water waterfall control tool, management tool for things like overpopulation of snow geese and those kind of things. Canada geese, um, and then lastly, without all those fundings, that conservation dollars going towards wetlands, we lose a lot of the ecosystem services that come with and the benefits of
4: having wetlands. The political support that hunters provide probably it, it's probably impossible to overstate the importance of that, um, and and that. That oftentimes, because hunters, conservationists are willing to voice their concerns to their politicians, either through through letter or phone call or whatever the case may be, or through voting, that many times will translate into a greater amount of resources. You know, through some sort of like the farm bill is a great example, and and the ability, the, the degree to which conservationists speak out in support of the programs within that within that. Um, that piece of legislation is really, really important, and so it's not just the direct contributions that the individual hunters or conservationists make out of their own pocket, but it's their political influence as well, as you talked about. So let's move now to a discussion of what what you've learned uh, with respect to motivations for hunting and and then barriers uh, or to to hunting. And so what? Uh, so either Chris, you, or Catherine, probably in a good position to. Address that?
1: So, we've done work focused on waterfowl hunters for motivations. Well, really, all big game, small game. And then I also did a side project actually looking at motivations of anglers in Nebraska. And really, no matter your outdoor recreation of choice, you're really motivated by getting outside, being in nature, appreciating wildlife. Um, And then, second to that, is just getting out there with people who care about wildlife like you do, your friends, and your family. That's really what's driving really any person choosing to get out there and get outside um, which has a lot of opportunity to get people to try other activities so um, say our small game hunters who you know love getting out there and seeing birds there's plenty of opportunity to try other say waterfowl hunting um, where you also have that and also that social aspect of getting out with your friends and going out in the morning and doing all that good stuff so I really see a lot of similarities when it comes to what gets people outside and what gets them excited about participating,
4: does, does that tend to vary geographically or demographically or, or how does all that break down? We tend to see
5: in a study that one of my um, previous graduate students did, Matt Heinrichs, he looked at that geographically and we saw very little um, difference between a waterfall hunter in Montana to one in Oklahoma or Michigan. They tended to all have similar motivations. The same thing as Catherine just said, an angler has very similar motivations to getting out and participating as a waterfall hunter. One of the, the, the minor differences that we do see is that we do tend to see things like big game hunters being more motivated by trophy or um, filling your freezer is the big thing. Um, so the degree that which people want to consume the prey is, is varies a little bit more. But why they actually – the main reasons they do it is, as Catherine said, to get outside and, and be with
4: people. And then also uh, barriers to, uh, to entry. What are we seeing and what are we hearing in terms of that? Because we've done a – you all have done a host of surveys and there are a host of surveys that have been uh, conducted just sort of across North America to begin to address these questions. But what's, what show up as some of the key barriers to, to participation?
1: So, overwhelmingly, the biggest thing that we've come across is access. So, access to the resource, just places, public land places to go, um, places that are close to home, so you're not driving, you know, eight hours. That's no matter your hunting group, or even anglers who have never participated in hunting, they perceive that as something that's keeping them back. So, yeah, any group, somewhere to go is the biggest thing holding people back.
5: And tied with that, though, in a place, especially like Nebraska, that's 97% privately owned um, the, the either the actual re- the realized constraint or the the actual um, perceived constraint of that you have to pay a lot of money to access private property um, is another barrier that holds people back and whether it actually occurs or not it is a big mental um, hurdle that people have to to try to figure out
0: you and your dog are a team.
4: So, Dale, prior to coming to Ducks Unlimited, you worked for the Missouri Department of Conservation, and I know y'all were at the forefront of some of this thinking with respect to how can we, how can we actively manage for better experiences, better opportunity for our waterfowl hunters at at what point in your career did these did these discussions occur did y'all conduct surveys to gauge these types of uh this, to gather this type of feedback from hunters and did y'all even back in those days did you did access come up as something that was important did, and did that lead y'all to certain uh, to any of the management actions that you put into place
2: Missouri like a number of Midwestern states driven by agriculture had seen a dramatic loss of wetlands historically. So right away, we started behind the curve, mind you. We'd lost uh, 90% of the historical wetland habitat base. And so very early on, uh, some pretty forward-thinking individuals um, determined that if we were going to be successful, we needed to manage for quality experiences. Um, One of the early managers in Missouri Um, stated that we wanted to have public areas that were just as good of hunting as any private hunting opportunity in the state. And that kind of set the tone for how people looked at private versus public land management. Uh, With that in mind, there was emphasis, oh, goodness gracious, uh, late 50s or earlier on providing quality hunting opportunity. Uh, They limited the number of hunters per um, party The number of hunters uh, per area, if you will, uh, on average a party per 40 acres roughly is kind of the thought process given. Uh, Quality habitat, access to those hunting opportunities um, with equal emphasis on the birds themselves with an eye towards seeing birds is at least as important as the opportunity to shoot birds. Uh, The opportunity to shoot is more important than actually taking birds home. You know, I had an opportunity and I saw a bunch of birds. If I didn't get one, it's my fault. And so those were key elements throughout. As we developed more recent management planning, uh, there was an emphasis on opportunity close to people. You know, when we developed uh, wetland management plans in the late 80s and through uh, 2000s, um, there was emphasis on places close to Kansas City, St. Louis, Springfield, other areas with population centers. Um, recent surveys indicated that uh, travel within uh, about an hour, about 60 miles or so, uh, was pretty necessary if you were going to meet um, perceived barriers of access and all.
4: So, yeah, it was just front and center, um, and it's been that case for 60-plus years. Have you all gone back and looked to see if the response that you thought would materialize actually did? Have you repeated those surveys you um, were you on target with the actions and I mean if so that's good but if not did you adjust the um, credit I'd have to uh,
2: say is uh, to some folks that were actually doing human dim- dimensions work in the mid 70s where some of the earlier efforts on just initially surveys to determine you know what people were looking for in an experience and that type of thing uh, we did the initial waterfowl hunter survey you know a complete survey, at least representative of Missouri waterfowl hunters, was done in the mid-80s. Um, it repeated that about every five years since. And to the credit to Andy Radeke, who's the current waterfall biologist in Missouri, who incidentally has a wildlife degree and a PhD in rural sociology. So you talk about combining... The, the skill sets needed to manage waterfowl and wildlife in this day and age uh, is probably as good an example as there is. And so given those repeated surveys, it enabled us to track whether or not things have changed over time, the degree to which the programs that we put in place were indeed successful, and gave us a hint as to how would we change them. Uh, given survey information, there's a need for us to then respond to changes that have occurred over time.
4: I think the point that I'm trying to to help us make here, and that I think we're all trying to make, is that just as we have studied and continue to study the ecology, biology of waterfowl and their habitats, uh, and and we apply that to the actions on the ground to improve habitats, restore habitats, enhance habitats to to achieve a certain population outcome for that uh, for the for waterfowl. So too are we doing that for the people. We are conducting surveys to to hear what the preferences, what the motivations are of the hunters, of our constituents. And increasingly states are trying to actually implement actions that um that align with those motivations and what our hunters and what our constituents are telling us. So I think that's one of the key messages that we want to want to make sure we're we're getting out there is that we we continue to study the biology of the critters, but we also, uh, the same is uh, true for the people. Um, so that's a very good thing. And, and
5: tying into that, we've been do- conducting a, a satisfaction survey in the Central Flyway in my lab from, from Montana all the way down to Texas, asking every year, uh, trying to get a more f- frequent basis on what is are some of the things that waterfowl hunters in the Central Flyway are expecting from their waterfall season, and how that's affecting satisfaction. And tying right into with what Dale said, um, we've, we've really found that things like seeing ducks is one of the most important things to duck hunters. They, they want to see ducks. If they don't see ducks, they tend to be dissatisfied. They want to have the opportunity to shoot. Doesn't necessarily mean hitting the duck, but they want to be able to fire their gun is another thing that really ties into um, satisfaction. Then, kind of down on the other side, they have lower expectations to fill their bag limits on any given day out in the field. But when it happens, duck hunters are really satisfied, and makes their day, makes their 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 trip. So that's a very consistent thing, thing we see across the central flyway as well.
4: I want to move now to a, a a developing, I don't know if you'd call it a movement, an initiative, and it's referred to within our field as R three. So Catherine I'll, I'll get you to to explain when we say R3 what are we talking about?
1: So when we say R3 in this context we're talking about recruiting new hunters, retaining the hunters we have, so keeping these people engaged and then reactivating individuals who have fallen out over the years, so who used to participate but just haven't had the time or whatever it may be that's kept them out of the out of the game for a while.
4: So we're recognizing that that not all hunters or not all prospective hunters or conservationists, I guess hunters, we can just stick with that for the purpose of this conversation, are the same. We have we have people that are not hunters at all. That's where the recruitment comes in, right? Where we're trying to get, get new hunters, you know. And so then we're ret- retaining existing hunters and reactivation. And are, and are do we think about those three groups of people the same?
1: No, we really think we – there's a lot of planning and an approach that goes into these different groups. So new individuals, um, we first got to think about how to even get them thinking about participating, um, if that's something they've even ever considered before. Um, individuals who are already participating, that's when these satisfaction surveys come into play, really making sure that because as we do manage wildlife for the public making sure that the public is getting what they want so not forgetting about the hunters who are already out there already funding our conservation putting in all the hard work and then individuals who don't participate anymore just really focusing on what we can do to get them back in the field so sometimes maybe they're just getting older they can't get out you know that kind of thing so there's not much we can do for that but if it's Nowhere to go. Maybe we can work on access like some states have done. Um, if it's maybe they don't have the equipment, we can do like Nebraska, you can rent decoys and all sorts of different things from um, the outdoor education center. So making sure those resources are there to get people back in who we've lost for some reason or another.
4: And and you're, uh, you just completed your master's degree mm-hmm. and you're starting your PhD now and you your master's work actually helped us understand a bit more about waterfowl hunters in this realm of, you know, reactivation, recruitment, retention. Um so I, I think I'd like to talk a bit about that. So um I guess at a at a high level, maybe share I know from the conversation this morning, um One of the most fascinating things that I learned was, uh, was number one, what we called the, what you call the churn rate. Um, explain that phenomenon, uh, whenever I, I introduce that. So explain what I really mean when I say churn rate. What, What are we talking about? What did you find? What was the neat aspect of your study there?
1: Right. So in addition to this decreasing active participation, we're also seeing what you're calling, um, high churn. And that really refers to um, the rate of individuals who are purchasing in one year, but then not purchasing in the next. So when we have high churn, we see a lot of individuals who say purchase a license um, in one year, but then the next year, for whatever reason, they can't purchase. And then maybe a few years down the line, they do purchase again, but we're not seeing like avid continuous participation from year to year. So what did we
4: learn with respect to the, the pattern of participation among hunters on an on in- you know, over time, you know, do do hunters do we see hunters participate every single year or during a given year? What do we know about the level of participation relative to um, any of those that have participated over some length of time?
1: Right. So there is um, kind of diversity in who is participating every year. We do have those individuals who purchase every year who are always getting out in the field um, are real avid groups, but. That's not most of our waterfowl hunters. Mostly, we see our more sporadic individuals who, you know, get out every other year, every few years, and these are individuals that, when we say churn, are churning out. So, they're buying in one year, um, but then the next year, they don't have time, whatever it is, they don't buy the next, um, but may buy in the future. Um, And that's really what our population is mostly made up up of. We do have a big core group um, of really go-getters that are going every year, but that's that's not the majority of participants
4: so when we looked over let's say a, a 10 year period the number of participants that we number of unique participants that we have uh, and then compare that to the number of participants on an annual basis what's that percentage is it about 20% I right so that? yeah
1: in any given year about 20% of the total hunters was how many were buying in that year wow
4: so that means there could be if everyone that had been a hunter in the past 10 years was a hunter next year there would be five times the number that we had yes here, roughly
1: <laughs> speak. that's a lot right which is we shouldn't expect all those people to go every that's year right. but
4: yeah because there are a lot of different motivations for people to hunt a lot of folks may have just been like like this happens to me often I have friends that live in different locations all across the country in the job that I have and I'll go visit them or I'll be in the area for a meeting or something and they'll invite me to stay over for an extra day or two to hunt so I'll hunt that that year in that state. Maybe the last time I ever hunt in that state. So I'm sure there's a small percentage of those that also show up in there. But I would nevertheless, I would be within uh, among among the participants uh, there for waterfowl hunting in that state.
5: I think tying into all of that too is that even though you're not participating every year, a lot of these people do identify as a waterfowl hunter or a waterfowl conservationist. It does not, a license purchase during any given year does not mean that you are not a, you do not identify as a waterfall hunter. And I think that's an important part of this thing. And it's the same thing with um, DU members, right? You may not purchase your membership every year, but you, you identify as a waterfall conservationist.
4: What are we seeing with respect to demographics uh, among waterfowl hunters? Uh, I'm mainly thinking male, female. That was one of the interesting thing that, that uh, jumped out to me with respect to recruitment rate among women was higher than it was for men and that's a really encouraging and exciting thing i know Mallory Murphy here in our uh, here in national headquarters has um has worked with some of our our sponsors on on their a, a women's only line of of hunting gear and so uh, that's just a very exciting area right now i think uh, in the entire waterfowl community what did you how did that Uh, shake out in your research? What were you seeing with respect to uh, men and women?
1: So like we'd expect, we did see for retention and um, continued participation, we did see that males were higher in that regard. But in the states that I studied and really in hunting in general, if you look at other research, the proportion of women in the hunting population is growing, which is super encouraging. And Especially when you look at just women in general to previous years, we are seeing more people get involved um, and starting to participate more actively from one year to the next, which, like you said, is super encouraging.
5: And tying into that, the younger women, too, I think, right?
1: Right. Like college age, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah, this my age people, college age individuals um, are really stepping in and getting involved and enjoying it.
4: And that's really important when we think about the generation that we're losing—the baby boomers. They're the ones that we're seeing um, fade from our uh, from our hunter um, hunter population, our, our member population. And uh, that's a large segment of society. And so it's going to take men, women, uh, you know, all demographics to replace the support, the uh, the political and financial support that those uh, that those people brought. Uh, to our efforts. So I think that's really exciting. and It's really important also. Uh, Chris, I'm interested, uh, given
2: your background and, and responsibilities and profession these days is, uh, look 10 years down the road, and look at the rate at which society is changing. And, you know, what are those things that we really need to be aware of? You mentioned a minute ago, the, the fact that the, the baby boomers, mm-hmm. um, and the age structure of the people in support of waterfowl conservation is
5: changing. So what are the challenges going forward? So, uh, uh, as we mentioned a little bit before, that um, the primary pe- uh, waterfall hunters are older white males, um, and they are aging out of the the ability to go out and, and hunt waterfall. Um, with this, we've and you hear this on the news all the time about the changing demographics in the United States that um, people of color are increasing in, in um, proportion, um, and so when we're t- thinking about recruiting and bringing in new new anglers, we need to think about Opening up our audience a bit more, um, reaching out to some of these different groups that may not have necessarily been part of waterfall hunting in the past, Um, and and this is can be a little difficult. Some of these these groups don't have necessarily the previous culture tied to waterfall hunting um, or or hunting in general. So trying to reach out and embrace. Some of these differences, trying out some new things to get people involved, I think is going to be absolutely important.
2: Catherine mentioned earlier today that the, the, the whole idea of social habitat. And so if we think about social habitat and the way we think of waterfowl habitat, then what are the key elements that are going to be needed going forward? You know, ducks need a place to nest, they need a place to migrate, they need a a food source to fuel their migration. Well, What's going to be necessary for us to fuel waterfowl conservationists in the future? What form will that take? And we've seen the landscape change with regard to waterfowl. The social landscape has changed as well. So we need to be as quick on our feet going forward, thinking about how does that social structure in support of waterfowl conservation going to change going forward? so I think we all share that responsibility Mm -hmm. in terms of academic understanding, in terms of advocacy for that social framework and so on. And so how do we as individuals make sure that 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 social habitat emerges and grows going forward?
5: And provides a space for a large group of people and a diverse group of people.
2: Well, with regard to that whole notion of social habitat, DU is so well positioned. As our other conservationist organizations, you know, when you think of uh, Wild Turkey Federation and others of the same thing, they provide that social habitat where people of the same mind that have the same concerns can, in fact, play a role going forward of establishing that social environment of that's welcoming, that's engaging, um, and and I think we have an opportunity in DU to play that role
4: going forward. Yeah, I definitely think so, and it's uh, it's exciting uh, having to see the evolution of how we're incorporating social science into the work that we do whether it be within Ducks Unlimited, whether we do whether it be within the wildlife profession uh, at large and whether it be driving our habitat conservation actions to ensure that what we're doing on the ground is good for the birds as well as good for the people. Uh, access, learning that access is one of the primary barriers to to entry to hunting for a lot of people. We can use that to inform some of the actions that we're doing but also when we're just talking about the social habitat and the um, growing the the constituent base that that we need to continue to support our, our habitat efforts and support waterfowl population i think it's all really well i know it's all really important and it's it's just exciting to be able to um, apply some of the science that you and the human dimensions social sciences field are bringing to this and so thank you for taking the time to join us today today dale chris Catherine, thank you all so much for being here and uh, thanks for joining us on the show Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Special thanks to our guest on today's show. In studio, we had joining us former chief scientist, Dale Humberg. We also had associate professor from the University of Nebraska, Chris Chizinski, and his Ph.D. student, Catherine Graham. We appreciate their insights on a very important topic We also thank, as always, our producer, Clay Baird, for the great job he does with the podcast and getting him out to you, our listeners, and to you, our listeners, we thank you for tuning in and spending your time with us, and most importantly, for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.